Good morning. If you've ever been a parent, at some point you've heard this line, that's not fair. There is something hardwired into us that understands that the world is supposed to be one way when in fact it turns out to be something very different. And the challenge is, it's not fair. I didn't get my portion. I deserve better. Sometimes we have the audacity to put that statement in a prayer. God, it's not fair. So-and-so got a promotion. So-and-so got an advancement. So-and-so has a new car. I'm doing everything right. Why don't I see those kinds of breaks? It's not fair. We're in a series of messages entitled Praying Dangerous Prayers. And we're going to find out today that praying for fairness has a real danger associated with it. My mama used to tell me when I was a kid, I don't deserve that. Well, you don't want what you deserve. <laughs> there is a theologian whose name you may know, probably the most significant theologian in the Middle Ages. His name was Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas was one of the true intellects in the last 2,000 years of Western civilization. In fact, he attempted a monstrosity of a work that in Latin, in, in Latin was called, titled Summa Theologica, All Theology. It is a massive work, 38 treatises with containing 3,000 articles on different doctrines and theological discussions, more than 10,000 objections to those doctrines answered. He tried to bring into one coherent series of volumes, one massive academic achievement. He tried to bring all truth together in one place. He included anthropology and science, ethics, psychology, political theory, theology, everything in the human condition under God. All theology. After dozens of volumes and thousands and tens of thousands of words written, on December the 6th, 1273, he stopped not because he'd completed it. He went to Mass at the chapel of St. Thomas that day, and he would later tell his secretary that he caught a glimpse of eternity. And suddenly, he knew that all of his efforts to describe God fell so far short that he had decided to never write again. His comment was, I can do no more. Such things have been revealed to me that all I have written seems as so much straw. You see, when we fall into the danger zone 
of considering God to be somehow unfair in the way He runs the universe or in the way He treats us, unfair in what we got or didn't get, the solution to that feeling, we're going to find out today in the book of Job, the solution to that feeling is not an explanation from God about why he does things a certain way so that we'll understand. The solution is God gives us such an experience of his presence that all questions of fairness fly out the window. And we understand that every breath that we take is simply from the gracious sovereignty of our Creator God. I'm going to do something a little bit unusual today. I always read Scripture and, and, and I try and always tie the message to the text. But today, uh, I'm going to read a lot of Scripture. And so you might want to follow along um, and I'm going to read Scripture because this is a particular, um, there's a particular tone in the Scripture that we're going to look at today that I just can't do justice to by talking about it. I have to let it speak for itself. A lot of our praying, especially when we're frustrated, is is about God rather than to God. In fact, sometimes when we're angry, we talk at God. We think that events should unfold according to certain assumptions that we hold about the way the world works. Oftentimes I hear somebody say, well, you know, my life is a mess. I need to get back into church. Well, you do need to get back into church, but not as a bargaining chip with God. I have, I've heard people say, well, why is this happening to me, Pastor? I mean, I come to church every week. I, I, I'm involved. I, I, I tithe. I, I do all the right things. See, that is, that is a complaint about fairness, which is why the book of Job is given to us in the Bible. Because there is nobody in human history that can make the case, build the argument that I've done all the right things, and yet the universe just doesn't work the way we think it ought to work. And when we challenge that, what we're doing is we're telling God. We don't say this out loud. We don't let our disappointment with God actually be verbalized, but but, but we say things that, that at the bottom line r really amount to God is not doing a good job running things. If I was in charge, listen, anytime you start a sentence, a sentence that's, that begins with, if I was in charge, let me encourage you to just not finish the sentence. Because I promise you, there is no good place to land that plane. Open your Bibles to the book of Job. We're going to start in the 31st chapter. And I want you to understand that it's self-focus that demands fairness. When we pray, we know objectively that God is present, but, 
But God seldom actually makes himself known in, in really unmistakable ways. I mean, we can look in the, in the Bible and we see the, the, the transfiguration. You know that scene where Jesus took three of his disciples and, 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 and took them off uh, to the side and, and they were witness to Jesus uh, sort of allowing his humanity just for a moment to, to fade into the background and the glory of his divinity was put on display. And they were left speechless. In fact, the one who was never speechless, Peter, his solution was, hey, let's just camp right here. I don't ever want to leave this spot. In Revelation chapter 1, John sees a vision of Jesus in his glory, and he's, he, he's almost immobile as a result. In Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, verse 8, Daniel has uh, a vision of, of an angel. And, and just an angel makes Daniel fall down like a dead man. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, sees God seated on his throne. And immediately he's in distress because he understands that he's a man of unclean lips and he dwells among a people of unclean lips. Uh, an experience of God like that instantly puts us in our place. Not in a mean way, but in an appropriate way. One writer said this, those kinds of experiences with God amount to a brightly colored page in a black and white biography. We don't seek those out, but they are unmistakable when they happen. The book of Job, the first couple of chapters, gives us a, a glimpse behind the scenes of an event that takes place in heaven. There is a conversation, and by the way, in the entire book of Job, Job never gets an explanation about what we as the readers know from those first couple of chapters. He's never privy to that information. What we know is that um, God is proud. He's pleased with Job, a man of faith. And as the enemy is called to the court of the king in heaven, God says, hey, have you, uh, have you noticed uh, my man Job? Uh, he's, he's, he's something. God was showing off Job's faith. You ever considered that when you're going through something, that all of heaven may be watching your life of faith in the middle of your difficulties because God is proud of you and he's putting you on display? Well, we don't ponder that too much. God says, have you considered my man Job? And, and the enemy says, well, you know, of course he's faithful. I mean, look, you've blessed him and you've given him all kinds of stuff. I mean, yeah, he serves you because, because you, you, you've bribed him. God says, okay, take away his blessings. Now, God didn't do that because he's just playing with, with toys, with dolls, there's something incredibly significant happening here. What God is doing is he's saying, I'm going to show you what faith looks like when it's not connected to blessings. And so bad things start to happen to Job. God has said, here's your limits. He always puts limits on the enemy. Here's your limits. You can't go past this line. But you go do your worst. I'm going to put Job's faith on display. Well, sure enough, bad things start happening to Job, and, uh, 
And at some point, he's encouraged by, by his family and his friends to just curse God and die. And Job, in one of the great statements of faith in the whole Bible, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But it doesn't matter if the Lord gives or the Lord takes away. There's only one appropriate response. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Tremendous, tremendous statement of faith. Well, the enemy comes back and he says, well, yeah, okay. He, he kept his faith when I took away his blessings, but you know, you, you didn't let me get to him. And God says, okay, you can have him. You can't kill him. Life and death, that's not in your hands. But you can afflict him. Well, now bad things start happening, but they're not just around Job. They're to Job. And he's miserable. He never loses his faith in that he never abandons God, but he does talk at God some. Now, I'm not going to throw rocks at Job because I'm telling you, he held out way better than I probably do. But we're going to start in chapter 31, and we're going to find Job focusing on his unfair situation. And he's going to present his case to God about why this is so unfair. The world is not supposed to work this way. You can almost hear him saying that. He's going to give us seven categories of crimes, if you will, of sins. He's going to offer seven different ways that he is perfectly willing to suffer consequences if anyone can prove that he has been found guilty in any of these areas. I mean, this is a powerful thing. He's basically saying, here's a series of, uh, of, 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 of sins, seven areas of sin. If you can convict me of being guilty in any of these areas, I will willingly suffer the consequences. But he asserts his complete innocence. And really, the reason we have chapter 31 is Job intends to clear himself. And I think he means to prove that God is arbitrary and unfairly treating the innocent poorly. Well, look at Job chapter 31. He's going to take us on a journey. I'm not going to read this whole chapter, but I want to give you the, the seven categories. He starts in, by saying, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at a virgin? And what is the portion of God from above or the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not disaster to the criminal and misfortune to those who practice injustice? Now, that's where Job sets his uh, assumptions. Isn't the world structured in such a way that the people who do good have good things happen to them and the people who do wrong have bad things happen to them? That's his basic understanding. And frankly, it's the way a lot of people, even in our generation, still assume the world works. Now, now, here's a spoiler alert. I just want to tell you up front. We can assume that's how the world was meant to work. But it is not how it works today. It is how it will work someday. But not today. Here's these categories. He starts by talking about falsehood. Uh, in verses 5 through 8, he says, If I have walked with deception and my foot has hurried after deceit, let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. He goes, if it's about falsehood, I'm innocent. I'm willing to be examined on that. Drop down to verse 9. The category is adultery. 
He says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind grain for another and let others kneel down over her. In other words, I'm willing to pay the price if I've been found guilty of adultery. Verse 13, the category is injustice. If I have rejected the claim of my male or female slaves when they have filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises? In other words, if I've mistreated people, then when God mistreats me, I wouldn't have a case. But I'm not guilty of that. In verse 16, uncharitableness. He says, if I have kept the poor from their desire or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not shared it, he says, I'm not guilty of not sharing with people in need. I'm not guilty of, of greed or, 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 or holding my resources and not being generous. Verse 24, materialism. He says, if I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had obtained so much, if I had looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart was secretly enticed and my mouth threw a kiss from, uh, my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been a guilty deed calling for judgment. If I was enamored by materialism, if I was consumed with consuming, then I would be guilty, but that's not me. Verse 29, secret sin. Have I rejoiced at the misfortune of my enemy or become excited when evil found him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life and a curse. He says, I, there's, there's nothing hidden. There's nothing that I do in secret that can't be brought into the open. In fact, if you can find a secret sin, put it on display. I'm willing to be judged by that. Verse 38, the abuse of others. He says, if my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or have caused its owners to lose their lives, may the thorn bush grow instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. Have I mistreated my employees? Have I acted without integrity toward vendors that I deal with? If I have, put it on display. I'll pay the penalty. Chapter 31 is really a stunning inventory of a man who says, I'm perfectly satisfied to stand before God because I have not committed sin in any of these categories. God is treating me unfairly. Look at verse 35 of chapter 31. He says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my adversary has written, I would certainly carry it on my shoulder. I would tie it to myself like a garland. I will declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. He says, I'm willing to go on trial to have my name cleared. And he says, and he, and he says, I'm talking to God. I want God to see my testimony. Here is my signature. The Hebrew literally, literally means look, my X. I've marked my mark on this testimony. He challenges God to respond. 
Life is not fair. And I deserve better from you. It's hard to be mad at Job from my perspective because there are times along the way where the only difference between me and Job is he said out loud what I was thinking in private. I don't deserve this. This is not fair. I've done everything I can do. I've, I've avoided things I'm not supposed to do. I've done the things I am supposed to do. And yet, look, look at what's happening to me. That's a self-focus that demands fairness. Well, the book of Job is a series of conversations between Job and some friends who are all um, what I might call amateur theologians. They're all convinced that they know the way the world works, and they know that if Job is going through hard times, that he's got to be a sinner. There's got to be some stuff that he's not fessing up to. And Job consistently is defending himself against their accusations. And, 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 and really, that's where chapter 31 brings us, is he turns and he says, no, there is nothing here except God can't be trusted to do what he said he would do with the world. I mean, he doesn't say that, but he says it. All right? Now, self-focus is what demands fairness. Familiarity destroys wonder. Let me tell you this. Part of the demand for fairness is because we get to the place where we think that we have a pretty solid grasp of how the world is supposed to work. As a result, in order for us to get to the place where we think we understand things and, and, and know best, the price that we pay to get to that place is we lose the childlike wonder of the world that we live in. I mean, you ever, I had to, I had to learn, I had to fix a, a dryer, I mean a washing machine one time. Now, if you know me, I'm not, that's not my thing. I don't, that's not how I like to spend my time. You guys that love to tinker with things and take stuff apart and put it together. I would just rather live in a world of magical appliances. You know, you just, you just put this in and out comes something else. But we were so poor. Nobody was coming to save the day. So I took it apart. I figured out the problem. I went down. I bought the part. I came back. I, 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 I correct. I put it, installed it, put it, and it worked. But you know what that cost me? My knowledge of washing machines, it cost me my wonder <laughs> about the miracle of a washing machine. Turns out, it's just mechanical. I liked it better when it was like pixie dust. When we get to the place where we feel that we can tell God how to run the universe, 
We've taken this experience of the human life and we've turned it into a machine that we can disassemble and reassemble and we've lost the wonder in the process. Let me show you what happens. In chapter 38 of Job, God hadn't spoken through this whole book. He's been watching, he's been listening. But in chapter 38, um, God is going to uh, finally step up and have a conversation with Job. Uh, the Hebrew doesn't actually say this, but, but my translation would be this. God comes to Job and says, okay, enough. Put your big boy pants on, because now I'm going to talk. Listen to these chapters. Job chapter 38. Now, use your sanctified imagination because I can't do justice to these words, but imagine that God makes himself known to Job and he is speaking these words. Job is hearing this from God. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens the divine plan by words without knowledge? Now tighten the belt of your waist like a man, and I shall ask you, and you inform me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the measuring line over it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when it went out from the womb, bursting forth? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling bands, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors, and I said, as far as this point you shall come but no farther, and here your proud wave shall stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and made the dawn know its place? so that it would take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked would be shaken off from it. It is changed like clay under the seal and they stand out like a garment. Their light is withheld from the wicked and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea and walked in the depth of the ocean? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you would take it to its territory and discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. That's sarcasm, by the way. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for a time of distress, for a day of war and battle? Where is the way that the light is divided and the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has split open a channel for the flood and a way for the lightning bolt to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a person in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the seeds of grass to sprout? Does the rain have a father or who has fathered the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Can you tie up the change of the Pleiades or untie the cords of Orion? 
Can you bring out a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heaven or do you establish their rule over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send flashes of lightning so that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom and pour out water jars of the heavens? When the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together, can you hunt the prey for the lioness or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their hiding places and lie in wait in their lair? Who prepares feed for the raven when its young cry to God and wander about without food? Oh, it's not over. But can you feel Job beginning to cower before this onslaught? Chapter 39, do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time they give birth? They kneel down, they deliver their young, they get rid of their labor pains, their offspring, offspring become strong, they grow up in the open field, they leave and do not return to them. Who sent the wild donkey out free? Who opened the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I gave the wilderness is as his home." and the salt land is his dwelling place. He laughs at the turmoil of the city. He does not hear the shouting of the taskmaster. He explores the mountains of his pasture and searches after every green thing. Will the wild bull be willing to serve you or will he spend the night at your feeding trough? Can you tie down the wild bull in a furrow with ropes or will he plow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyously with the pinion and feathers of love, for she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust, and she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild animal may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor is for nothing, she is unconcerned because God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. When she rushes away on high, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like locusts? His majestic snorting is frightening. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the battle. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and javelin. He races over the ground with a roar and fury, and he does not stand still when he hears the sound of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he senses the battle from afar and the thunder of the captains and the war cry. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle flies high and makes his nest on high? He dwells and spends his nights on the cliff, on the rocky cliff in an inaccessible place. From there he tracks food. His eyes look at it from afar. His young ones also lick up blood greedily. And where the slain are, there he is. Where's God when the world is not fair to me? And God's response is, okay, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I set the dawn in its place? Where were you when I 
set the boundaries of the oceans and told the mighty waves, you can't come any further. Where were you when I created animals of majesty and of power, of fearlessness? Where were you when I set the wind to blow? Do you know where the, the, the places of life are? Do you know where the places of death are? Do you know how to divide light and darkness? Where were you? Now consider this. There is traditionally the idea that God is, in a sense, taunting Job in this chapter. I think that that might be part of this. But I think what God is doing here is he's trying to bring Job back to a place where he recaptures the wonder of it all. God's creativity is, in one sense, the most obvious thing about him. I mean, really, he grandstands it. He parades his crafts and his wares before us. But at the same time, God's creativity is hidden. Sometimes he's elusive with it, playful, coy. Much of what he makes, he tucks away in microscopic minuteness or cosmic immensity, deep beneath us or far above us. He saves the most intricate work for the insides and the undersides of things. Only the playful often find his best work, and seldom do we play anymore, and rare is our wonder, and I wonder how much of God we're missing. Listen, we don't lose the freedom to approach God and speak boldly by faith. The Bible tells us that, that we have that privilege. But we also have to rediscover the reverence that comes through awe and wonder. Often I think we confuse intimacy with familiarity. Intimacy is dangerous. It is a knowing and a being known deeply and profoundly by God. Familiarity may create the illusion of intimacy, but it's safer. It's more surface level. I mean, even in the New Testament, there were Galileans who had watched Jesus grow up. They had observed him his whole life. And yet when the, when the time came to acknowledge that he was the Messiah, they said, thanks, but no thanks. They were familiar with him, but they didn't know him. Familiarity destroys wonder. And I think what God is doing in these chapters is He is um, He's demanding a respect which is necessary to precede intimacy. You can't have intimacy with just name tags or icebreakers or sharing time. We're often too flippant with God because we see Him as a sort of celestial chum. I think that explains Job's disappointment. He had fallen into the trap. I th he truly loved God and he lived by faith. There's no question about that. But in walking with God, he had fallen into the mistaken idea that he and God were buddies and he felt betrayed by a friend. But see, in order for God to become a buddy, by definition, it means we've lost the awe and the wonder 
that God even created us and desired to be in relationship with us in the first place. Well, look where this story goes. Reverence begins in silence. In Job chapter 40, it says, Then the Lord said to Job, This is a powerful question. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who rebukes God give an answer. We don't talk about being disappointed with God. At least we don't say those things out loud. But the reality is, um, I think we all find times in our lives when God just doesn't jump through the hoops the way we think He should. He doesn't provide or answer or do what we think is the best option available. And this question haunts me. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who rebukes God give an answer. Well, at this point in my sanctified imagination, Job is backed into a corner and he is trying not to make eye contact. But God says, step up and give me an answer. Now's your time to speak. Now you can speak because I'm here. Don't be talking about me. Don't be talking at me. Now, speak. And here's what we have. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I say in response to you? I put my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not reply or twice and I will add nothing more. Well, we're headed in the right direction, folks. Because the man in chapter 31, who had a long tirade about his innocence, here he says, I'm, I'm just going to shut up for now. And so God says, okay, I have more to say. Use your imagination, verse 6, chapter 40. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind and said, Now, tighten the belt on your waist like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Put your big boy pants on. Will you really nullify my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with pride and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Let out your outbursts of anger and, let, and look at everyone who is arrogant and humble him. Look at everyone who is arrogant and humble him and trample down the wicked where they stand. Hide them together in the dust. Imprison them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. He goes on to describe other animals and and talk about the majesty of his creation. I know the standard way to look at these chapters is that God is challenging Job, and, and there is that, no doubt. But I think there is this attempt 
on God's part to dazzle Job into seeing more of God than just the divine keeper of religious standards or the maintenance man for creation. See, that's what we've done. We pray like God is just uh, the Amazon guy. And we just click on a few things that we want and we just then wait for next day delivery. What God is trying to do here with Job is, is He's trying to get him to come back to the place where, where God is answering Job's misery with an invitation to wonder and childlike awe. Job, if you, if you could quit looking at yourself for one minute and recapture what it means to take breath in this extraordinary thing that we call the earth. The creation and the variety and the beauty. If you could just watch a sunset and ponder the God who put it into place. But see... We watch the sunset, and if we think about it at all, we think, well, the earth is rotating, and, and, you know, I mean, it's just part of the natural processes. Yeah, natural processes, that's just another way of saying God built something that works. But we've lost sight of exactly who it is that should be captivating our imagination, how did Job respond? Suddenly his torrents of complaints about the way the universe was being operated seemed pointless and empty. With God talking about where were you when I put the dawn in place, all of a sudden Job realizes that he's reduced in size and he has nothing left to say. You cannot be simultaneously puffed up and lifted up. There's something profoundly healthy and holy about being small and reduced to silence. Small and speechless. That's when we're ready to worship. And folks, we live in a generation that if it is marked by anything else, it is marked by the arrogance that thinks that we are the smartest human beings to ever live. And before we get that spiritual awakening that we looked at a week ago about to begin praying for, we're going to have to be reduced so that we're not quite so full of ourselves. It's not that we make God bigger by making us smaller. It's that we have elevated ourselves to the point where God doesn't look so overwhelming. God's the same. We need to have a proper perspective on who we are. Small and speechless. That's where intimacy begins, and that leads to worship. Look in chapter 42. Job's going to speak again. He's incoherent a little bit. He speaks chokingly. 
But he's going to quote God's question. And surprisingly enough, he's going to laugh at himself through his tears. Frankly, it's a good thing to laugh in the presence of God at our own silliness. Tears and laughter are mingled because nothing matters anymore when you find yourself in His presence and you discover that you can still breathe. Job chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no plan is impossible for you. Who is this who conceals advice without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I do not know. Please listen and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent, sitting on dust and ashes." In verse 5, Job realizes that he'd only heard about God. But now everything has changed. He both hears God, but now he sees Him for himself. Does he repent? Absolutely. He's changed completely. Think about this. Job is a man in this book who has already out-argued three amateur theologians. He's already uh, contested his wife's advice. I mean, he has, he has answered every challenge. Only now, the man who convinced everyone else of his own rightness, now he repents. This is worship. One writer put it this way. What matters is that God should receive from you the worship that such a God merits. It is His due. You are indebted to offer it. Be still by faith in His presence. Acknowledge in words that He is very God of very God, that every breath that fills your lungs comes from Him, that no one else is worthy to rule the universe. Tell Him that you know He is holy and there is no one like Him. Tell him that you owe him your allegiance, your body, your time. Tell him that you recognize that his mercy to you is far more than you ever deserve. And from that place, the Holy Spirit will teach you how to go on. Life is never going to be the way we want it to be because creation is broken. We would love to live in a world where there are no surprises, no adversity, where pain and suffering is always kept at a safe distance. That's not going to happen. But in this life, truly knowing God and being known by Him, that makes everything different. As it turns out, mercy and grace are better than fairness.
Father, as we go out from this place today, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, convict us when we have communicated to you in some way that implies that you're not doing a good enough job, that we know better, and if you would just get on board, then, then things would be right. Father, we, in those moments, realize that we are speaking about things that we don't know anything about. And so I ask that, that you would give us such a sense of your presence that it would create in us, in a fresh way, an awe and a wonder that you would even give us your attention at all. Father, that we would be the people of God and that we would be appropriately astonished that we've been allowed to have that title. Father, the world is broken. We've not been placed here to gain fairness and to be comfortable. We've been placed here in the brokenness of the world to testify to the awe and the wonder, to the majesty and the glory of the God that we serve. Renew us, Father, so that we might speak again to those around us with a tone of amazement that the God who spoke light into existence, that that God knows my name. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. We're small and speechless and deeply humbled that you have seen fit to make a way for us to be restored into relationship with you. Father, thank you for all that you've done. And thank you for all that is in store when things will be right as we deep down know they should be. Give us patience. Make us effective for your use in this life while we're here. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.